Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, just really quick, a plug for uh, the Omega Hour after church today. We're going to be talking about evolution. Is evolution at odds with Christianity? Um, that's, that's like the main point of the, the Omega Hour. But we're also going to talk about science a little bit in general and then get into to evolution more specifically. Um, it's one of my favorite topics to go into. No, I'm not a scientist. Good news, you don't have to be a scientist to understand the overarching principles of science and religion um, and, and where they do and don't conflict. So that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. Um, but in our text, we have just such an awesome, awesome piece of Revelation 19. So again, we're done with the, the three sevenfold visions. And then we have this like one big vision that's going to get us all the way through um, the all the way through Easter, and this is the the big vision, the sort of overarching themes of the entire book of Revelation and end times. And there is this beautiful picture of of not just the end end when the world ends and all people stand before Jesus, but think in terms also of whenever we lose a loved one, this is the image, this is the the vision that. John has of them connecting for the first time in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 19. We're beginning with verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is really a beautiful text on, on marriage and our relationship to God is not just found here, in, in Revelation. And the, the most famous text that you might be recalling at this point, maybe not, it's, it's actually towards the end of the famous marriage text. It's the text that all men want to have at their wedding and no women do, right? Submit to your wives. It's so unfortunate that that's how we have mapped out that text because it it's, it's only says that because there's a break and there's a title right there. And that's actually not part of Scripture. If you go back just a little bit, one verse ahead of that, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands, and details how wives submit to their husbands. And then husbands, submit to your wives like this. It just doesn't use the word submit with husbands, but it's, it's the same language. It's the same conversation. There's this mutual serving of one another. And, and Paul keeps talking about how wives submit, how men submit, and all of these things. And towards the end, he, he gets to this 
this part of his discussion where he, he almost can't tell the difference whether he's talking about the, the wedding and marriage of people or the church. In fact, from Ephesians, we've got it up here on the screen. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He gets to the point where he almost can't tell the difference. What he's saying is a husband and wife are sort of the, the visual representation of the relationship of Christ and the church. That is Jesus and us. The, the whole institution of marriage has this, this ongoing connotation of this is what God sees when he sees the church. He sees you as his beloved bride. I know it's kind of weird for dudes to think of it that way. Don't, don't, don't spend too much time on that part of it, but rather how much he loves us and is anticipating us. I, I don't know about you, but when I got married, I wasn't thinking in those terms like, my wife and I are going to be the visual representation of God and his people to our children and to the world. I had like three check boxes. Those were uh, loves Jesus, loves family, is hot. Like those were the three. <laughs> I got it. I got all three, <laughs> right? I, was, I forgot she was teaching children's church. I was hoping to score some brownie points there. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> But I mean, I, I was blessed that, that we do have this, this beautiful representation that we can show the world and we can model to our children and, and others. But I wasn't thinking that way when we got married. <laughs> we got lucky in that regard. Blessed, however you want to think about it. But as I'm going to say today, there's, there's no marriage that is perfect, there's no marriage that, that doesn't have struggles and trials and, and difficulties. That just doesn't exist. But before we even get to that point of, of talking about how this, this representation of the church is, is like a marriage, we actually first have to talk about the great divorce. It's the first point in the sermon. The great divorce is the, the fact that humanity and God have been torn apart. You see, when it was created, it was perfect. There was, there was husband and wife, and there was God, and they were in this perfect community. There was no space between heaven and earth. There was no distance between God and man. It is the sin of mankind that caused that separation. It is an ongoing theme, this this ripping and tearing apart. It's an ongoing theme that goes all the way even to our death when in, in a very unnatural and in a very um, just, just painful and, and awful way, our spirit is divorced from our body at death. And it's not supposed to work that way. But as we all recall, especially as we look forward to Easter, Easter is a reminder of the resurrection where body and spirit are married together again with a new body, with that soul for eternity. So, so this theme is, is pretty consistent, but it's important to remember that 
we are the, the as the bride of, of Christ, we are the wife that, that has left. We are the ones that have separated. And going all the way back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54, I'll put this up on the screen as well. The Lord says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Now, that doesn't mean that God casts his people off. What he means is, is that's the feeling that people have when it comes to knowing their maker or creator, as he said in the beginning of that text. That distance that we feel, we often feel that it's God that has abandoned us. In, in our darkest, most difficult times, we think, where, O oh Lord, are you? The, the Psalms are filled with language like this. So we have to start with the great divorce to remember that it was us who went away. <laughs> it is us who, who do the sinning. We are the ones that cause that separation. And there's a thousand different ways that we do it. Thousands and thousands of different ways. And I want to keep running with this analogy of the marriage that the Lord gives us in Scripture. Because in any marriage, any time I've, I've talked to a couple, worked with a couple, I can always, always assure them of one thing. <laughs> one of you is not the problem. Both of you are the problem. <laughs> Nobody is innocent in this thing. Nobody. There is, I, I've, I've never seen a dispute, an argument, a marriage that is, is troubled or, or going through issues where I can go, well, it's all this person. This person is entirely innocent. And if you think in your marriage that's not the case and you're the innocent one, your number one sin is lying. And you're lying to yourself. Once you realize that, that there, there, there is sort of this, this toxic brokenness in the marriage that, that comes from the, the sinful nature of both of you, both of you contributing, you're finally at a point in that moment where you can begin to understand this analogy of marriage that is Christ and his church. We have all sinned. We have all broken. And whenever we feel distant and we feel alone, the place to begin is not criticism of God. It is self-examination. This is what the best parts of Lent is this self-examination. Where, where have I contributed? We're not saying everybody else is innocent. We're not saying in, in life the problems that we have, whether it's in marriage or in, in any other relationship or problems, anything. We're not saying everybody else is perfect. What we are saying is I can discover my sin. I can discover my problems and I can deal with my own garbage. Let me start there. I, I, can't, I can't change anybody else. I can't do anything about anybody else. But I can start with me. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of Lent because another one of my favorite things to do during Lent is fasting. Now, we don't talk about fasting a lot because Scripture says you shouldn't be focusing on it. You shouldn't be elevating it. And I don't preach a lot on it, but it's something I practice. I know there's a lot of members in the congregation. If you ever have questions about it, please feel free to ask. I'm actually kind of considering doing a study or a series or something on it in the future. 
But I'm, I'm in the process of fasting with a, a friend of mine going way back. He's, he's a pastor also, different congregation, and a little bit younger than me, and, and he's always had some questions about it. And, and as we're fasting, I go, here's the problem with fasting. People think it's going to be this mountaintop, that they're going to fast, and then they're going to feel close to God, or they're going to get a, a blessing, some kind of spiritual uplifting. And I, and I say, no, fasting sucks. And that's the point. <laughs> like, that's, that's the whole point of it. It's awful. It's terrible. And in those moments of, of, of that, in, in, in the, that darkness, in, that, in the middle of the suck, you look at yourself and go, yeah, <laughs> this is awful. What is awful about it? And my own frailty that I, I can't go 24 hours w- without eating? Well, that's part of it. But usually in, in those moments, something creeps up that I'm annoyed about or whatever, and I'm in a grumpy mood, and I go, that's the thing in my life that somehow I'm messing up. That's the thing in my life that needs attention. It's, it's accusatory towards self. And as I look at those things, and in the midst of the suffering, I always look at those issues, and I, and I never think to myself, oh, good, I get to work on that now. <laughs> and it's, uh, there's another thing <laughs> that's going to take work and effort and sacrifice. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take all of these things, and all of those things also suck. <laughs> that's what fasting is supposed to do because it puts us in the right place, in the right position, and it reminds us I'm the source of the problem. I, my sin is the issue. And as we, we discover that and deal with it and wrestle with it, only then do we understand I've put myself in this place of my own sin, of my own volition, of my own will. Here's how I contributed to it. And the distance that I am feeling from God is my fault, my own grievous fault. But he made a promise. We're going to start with Hosea 2.19. I guess I should put the sermon point up there first. The betrothal vow. The betrothal vow to... To be betrothed in the, in the scriptures in Jesus' time and before is different from our engagement. It's a way to think about it, but if you recall, Joseph and Mary, when, when they were together, they were betrothed to be married, and then at one point, Joseph is considering giving her a certificate of divorce, um, and you're thinking, well, I thought they weren't married yet. Yeah, once you made the promise to marry, it was considered deadly serious. To break that off was the same as, as breaking off a marriage. There were really two events. There was the, the betrothal, and then there was this really big feast, a, a celebration. There was this awesome, everybody gets together, there's food, and it's, it's a whole big deal. But that betrothal was, was deadly serious. We don't think of it in terms like that. When we get engaged, nowadays people get engaged, they can break off the engagement, and there's no divorce, right? It's not, nobody's considering this a divorce. There's no legal paperwork or anything like that. Back then it was. So that, that promise to marry the, the other person was deadly serious. And this is what the Lord says in Hosea 2, 19 to 20. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. See, the, the promises of God are deadly serious. Just like the, the betrothal of, of Mary and Joseph and in the Old Testament, he considers the promise he makes to you to, to make you his bride, to marry you and to bring you back into communion and, and relationship as though it is already completed. He doesn't see it different in that regard. His promises are certain. Our promises aren't so certain. Our promises of engagement sometimes fail. Our promises even in marriage, 50% of the time, statistically, fail because of us. But God made the promise to you to marry you into eternity. And God doesn't go back on his promises. Right there in the text, he made that promise to you and to all of his people that he will treat you as his precious beloved bride and he will pursue you as a groom pursues his bride to the very ends of the earth, even in the midst of, of the darkness, even in the midst of the suck. When you feel furthest from him, when you feel as though he is distant from you, the Lord is pursuing you and you're not perceiving that he is present, but he is right there with you in the midst of it. And that's the beauty of breaking a fast, is the moment you begin to eat and feel nourished, you recognize he was there with me. The Spirit of God is the one who, who brought to the front of my attention. These are the, the blind spots I have. This, this is the sin that's in my life. These are the problems that I have been causing in my life. It's the Holy Spirit bringing those up. So if, if I'm feeling that and, and recognizing it, that means God's Spirit is with me. Even in, in, in the midst of all of that where it feels so distant and all I see is my sin, it's God showing me that sin. It's God letting me know that it's there, but then the promise as I break the meal, as I break the fast with a meal, I recall the promise, which is that he will deal with this sin, that he will wash me clean of it, not because I do a good job of fixing it and get better and stop sinning, but rather he is, he is the one who will deal with all of the, the sin and the brokenness in my life and in the lives of others. I've got one more scripture to put up here from 62 verse 5 of Isaiah. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's rejoicing over you today. Meaning not only has he made the promise to you today, but he sees, he sees the wedding feast that is to come that was in our text this morning from Revelation. That moment when you, when you rise from the dead, but even before that, as you die and you, and you are with him there in heaven, he sees in advance this glorious moment where you arrive to be with him and it is this celebration and it is this feast because he sees in you 
the perfect spouse. Last point in the sermon, the perfect spouse. Now, I don't normally like to talk about myself so much. Again, I thought she was going to be here and it was going to be funnier. It's all right. Here's the thing. I started by saying um, nobody is the perfect spouse in the marriage. But I want you to think hypothetically for a moment what that would be like and how short that marriage would be, <laughs> right? Not, not only because the perfect spouse, if, if, if this hypothetical spouse never did anything wrong, it was never their fault, not only would they be really annoyed at the other person for, for doing things wrong, for making mistakes, they, they would be terribly annoyed, their standards would be way higher, they just wouldn't put up with that. The other spouse would look and be like, well... How am I ever going to live up to that? <laughs> you know, a, how am I ever going to be good enough? How am I ever going to, to appease or, or give this person what they need if, if I'm not perfect? It would never work out that way. But if we are the bride of Christ, there is this, <laughs> there is this problem. He's perfect. And we're not. So then he perfects us. But, but he does so in a way that is really very counterintuitive, but incredibly applicable to you and your marriage and your relationship with others, not even in marriage, but just in general. He perfects us by himself first being perfected in, in the last way you would ever think. From Hebrews, we had a lot of Hebrews this morning. It's a great book of the New Testament. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Oh, look at that for a minute. This is, this is saying that Jesus, who is the founder of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. And that in doing so, he would bring many of his children to glory. You're, you're thinking, wasn't Jesus perfect before he suffered? Yes, but the perfection was, was completed. It was, it was fully there as he was obedient even unto the beating and the suffering and his death. The, the, the perfection was fully and complete. It was, it was all finished when he says it is finished. That is his perfection in suffering and death. He was made perfect through all of that because he took on our sin obedient to the plan of God. The salvation plan was take all of the sin of humanity and put it on Christ. Make him to be sin so that in his death, his righteousness can come to us and perfect us. He suffered so you can be made perfect. Through his own suffering and his own death, he did this thing. And in our baptism, we are joined to that suffering and joined to that death. And then therefore made perfect so that we are that perfect bride. We are that perfect bride that, that stands before him on that last day, raised up in glory. So if you want to pursue the perfect relationship, 
If you want to pursue the perfect marriage, which we all should be doing, if we want to be pursuing perfection in how we deal with other people, it is through our own suffering and our own death, not theirs. (laughs) We're quick to blame other people. We're quick to make others suffer. We're quick to say, if you want this thing to work, if you want this marriage to work, you got to figure it out. If you want this relationship, friendship, whatever it is to work, then you better figure this thing out. When Christ never asked you to figure it out, to clean up your act, to get better, to be perfect so that you could be his bride. He suffered and died. If you want a a better marriage, a better friendship, a better relationship, a better life, then begin suffering. Begin dying to yourself. Your anger that you have over somebody, kill it. You need to die to to your pride. You need to to kill your arrogance that that you are the most important part of any interaction and relationship. You have to die to yourself, to to your greed, to your hunger. This is what fasting is. It's practicing in a physical way what we ought to be doing spiritually. We suffer as Christians. We die to ourselves as Christians for the benefit of others. We do what isn't fun. We do what isn't enjoyable. We don't indulge in the wonderful things of this world, not for ourselves, not for God, but for our fellow man. Die to yourself. Suffer to yourself and others. Other people will benefit, and, and I'm telling you, it's, it's the weirdest, coolest dynamic. As you work on self, as you recognize your own sin, as you work with the Holy Spirit to, to combat your own sinful self, you see other people benefit and do the same. The perfect marriage is about two people dying to self, suffering themselves, For the benefit of the other. This is how marriages work. The way they divorce and are split is is when they are selfish and self-centered to themselves and they eventually pull apart. Just like Adam and Eve were selfish and self-centered, arrogant, and thought God surely didn't mean we would die and ate of the fruit. But because he suffered and he died and in that perfection makes us perfect, we have this beautiful picture. I want to read it one more time. I want you guys to think of this in terms of at the death, maybe you have a loved one who's already gone to heaven. I want you to just have this image in your mind of that person just walking into heaven. Or, or of yourself, just walking into heaven, you hear, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, she was granted, you were granted to clothe yourself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is why brides wear white. The, the color of no blemish, no imperfection to remind us of the resurrection, to remind us of our moment when we arrive 
And the text really begins with John saying, I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of of mighty peals of thunder, and and people crying out, hallelujah. The, The whole crowd stands as the bride walks in. As you step into eternity, as your loved one stepped into eternity at their death, all of the angels and, and chorus of angels, archangels, stood and began to sing and to celebrate. The whole crowd turns and faces the bride, your loved one, your, your father, your mother, your grandparent. As they walked into the pearly gates, everyone stood and celebrated that they were here. And that's awaiting you. It's awaiting all of us at the resurrection. All of the heavenly hosts will be celebrating and cheering because you have been made perfect by the blood of the lamb, washed clean. And as you arrive into that eternity, smiles, rejoicing, and singing. And it's all because he suffered and he died to make you holy and perfect. So suffer and die unto self for the benefit of somebody else as Christ Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray, amen. May the peace which surpasses human understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're gonna have the kiddos come on back in and um, we're gonna wrap here with a word of prayer before we stand and do our benediction. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for rejoicing over us sinners that you have perfected by the death and resurrection of your son. Christ Jesus, you are to us not just Lord, but also Savior. You have rescued us from dark places where we are all alone. You have rescued us from brokenness. You have forgiven our sins and granted to us life eternal with you, but life with a close relationship with you even today. We give you thanks, Lord, for this opportunity to sing your praises and to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and to receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Amen.